you've got a Bible, you can go to uh, Acts chapter 15. If you're new to the Bible, don't feel bad about trying to find different verses and books that we're in. Uh, it takes a little while to get used to how the scripture is laid out. Acts is in the New Testament. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those are called the Gospels. And then we get to the book of Acts. And Acts was written by a historian named Luke who carefully researched the claims of Jesus, interviewed eyewitnesses, and he lays out the history of the life and ministry of Jesus leading to his death and resurrection in his gospel called Luke. And then he continues the work of Jesus by laying out the history of the early church in Acts. And uh, today we're going to be talking about a definitive moment in the history of the church. And the definitive moment in the history of the church that we're going to talk about may on the surface seem a bit boring, a bit dry, because it's known as the Jerusalem Council. So I may say Jerusalem Council, and you may think uh, we're going to get really nerdy. We're going to talk about a group of dry theologians that got together around round tables and hashed out stuff that may not matter for your life. And I would actually say that the Jerusalem Council is one of the most important things that's ever happened in the history of humanity, let alone the church. Because at the Jerusalem Council 2,000 years ago, the mission of Jesus that's always been, it's always been a transcultural, transethnic, transnational, global movement was in danger. It was in danger because of misconceptions that are always in the hearts of people that are trying to follow Jesus but are marked by our sin. And the danger of the, of the mission and the movement 2,000 years ago is tragically the same danger that we have today, 2,000 years later in Oklahoma City. So what happens in this moment is there's two misconceptions that just seem to be really hard to kill about Jesus and his church. Two misconceptions that keep popping their head up in history. And this group of leaders, these apostles and these elders, are going to get together in Jerusalem and they're going to hit these two misconceptions and they're going to give us some clarity on how we should fight these misconceptions. So let me give them to you. The two misconceptions that keep trying to derail the mission and movement of Jesus are these. And, and these aren't the only ones, but these are two of the big ones. Misconception number one is that there's a certain type of person that the gospel of Jesus is for. There's a certain type. Uh, maybe it's a personality type. Maybe it's a cultural type. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a particular nation that's more suited to the gospel of Jesus. But the misconception basically says that the message and mission of Jesus is narrow in its focus, and there's only certain kinds of people because of their cultural worldview or their upbringing or the way in which they see reality. There's only certain people that are ever going to experience the power of the gospel. So there's a type. The second misconception is that the doorway into becoming a Christian is trusting in Jesus and his life, his death, and his resurrection. And, and it's adding to the finished work of Jesus something that we can control and contribute to to become a follower of Jesus. So it's Jesus and faith in him plus fill in the blank depending on the cultural moment. In this context, it was trust in Jesus and become functionally Jewish. Get circumcised. Right? Keep the law of Moses. Keep the dietary traditions of Israel. In our day and age, it's not so much circumcision and keeping the law of Moses as it might be if you want to become a Christian, then you need to trust in Jesus plus clean up your life before you're eligible for the promises of God. 
Or if you want to know Jesus, trust in Jesus and join these pre-approved particular denominations. Or trust in Jesus and you have to have a major cultural shift to being in a particular political party. Or you have to have a particular worldview or you have to have a particular set of behaviors before your faith in Jesus is going to bring you into the family of God. What happens in Acts chapter 15 is those two, those two really insidious misconceptions, they get head, head on. And what we find based on the counsel of these leaders with each other and scripture and the Holy Spirit is, first of all, there isn't a particular type of person that the gospel has power for. It's not a cultural movement. It's not a nationalistic movement. It's not for liberal people or conservative people or Republican people or Democratic people. It's not for wealthy people versus poor people or poor people versus wealthy people. The gospel of Jesus is God's movement of grace towards all of humanity in the person and work of Jesus. There's not a type. Secondly, they hit the misconception that the doorway is Jesus plus by reaffirming that the way you receive the promises of God is by faith in Jesus and receiving his grace, period. You don't add to it. You don't contribute to it. You receive it as a crazy, insane, miraculous gift. So take your Bible. Um, My prayer today is wherever you're at, those of you that are non-Christians and you're trying to figure out If the claims of Jesus make sense, my prayer is that this is really helpful for you today. Um, If you're like many people in our church and you got hurt in the church because there was more man-centered religion than gospel, my prayer is that this is particularly helpful for you today. And, And if you're trying to follow Jesus and you keep finding yourself slipping back into shame or back into legalism or back into despair, my prayer is that this reminds you of just how crazy the gospel is. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Here's what it says. But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas And some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And they brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rode up, rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. Okay, if you were with us last week, we walked through what's just known as Paul's first missionary journey. What happens is Paul and this guy named Barnabas are in this really diverse city known as Antioch that becomes the first Christian church made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And they're being saved by grace and they're doing life together. And this church in Antioch becomes this church planting movement church that realizes that the message of Jesus is the best news in the world. It changes everything. It's way too good to just keep to themselves. And so God, the Holy Spirit, he picks this guy named Paul, who used to be known as Saul, and this guy named Barnabas, 
And the apostles or the leaders in the Antiochian church lay hands on these brothers and they send them out on a missionary journey. And what happens, as we saw last week, is that they go to these really diverse communities where there are Jewish people, there are Hellenistic people or Greek-minded people, and then there are people just known as barbarians. And that doesn't mean that they have like loincloths and bow axes. It just means those are sort of the other Gentiles that weren't formed by Greek thought. And what happens in places that are really diverse, like the island of Cyprus and the region of Galatia, Paul and Barnabas hit the ground and they preach the good news of Jesus and God the Holy Spirit does what he does. He draws people to faith and repentance. And so what happens is they do this first missionary tour and at the end of their tour in all of these particular cities, there are churches that get started that are made up of Jewish converts that trusted in Jesus Greek converts that trusted in Jesus and barbarian converts that trusted in Jesus. And it's fantastic. It's awesome. It's amazing. It's the great commission getting fulfilled. Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And that starts to happen in Acts 13 and 14. Then Paul and Barnabas go back to the city of Antioch and they're just enjoying what God did on mission. They're sharing great stories of grace. They're talking about the people that were saved and healed and transformed. And all of a sudden, these guys show up to change the gospel. And the guys that show up have a few different names, all right? These folks that are trying to convince these Gentiles to become Jewish if they want to be saved, they have a few different names. Sometimes they're called the party of the circumcision, which doesn't sound like a party I would want to go to. (laughs) Does not sound like a good party. Nonetheless, sometimes they're called the party of the circumcision. Sometimes they're called the Judaizers. And sometimes, like in the book of Galatians, Paul just calls them troublemakers, And what these guys are doing is they're essentially saying that to be a Christian, to be born again, to receive the grace of God, to have all the promises that are in Jesus applied to your life, you have to believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus, and you have to get circumcised and keep the law of Moses. So in essence, track with me, both of those misconceptions are popping up. Who is the gospel for? Well, it's primarily for Jewish folks. It's primarily for Jewish folks. And maybe Gentile folks can receive the good news of Jesus if they're willing to become Jewish folks. The second misconception is what is the gospel and how do you receive the good news of God? Well, they're saying it's not just faith in Jesus and the grace of God. It's you receive the promises of God by contributing to the work of Jesus through you keeping the law and getting circumcised. So the church is at a crossroads. Is the church gonna be a Jewish sect that only is able to reach Jewish people in Jewish context, or is the church of Jesus going to be a transcultural, transnational movement that sees all nations, tribes, and tongues come to the saving knowledge of God in Christ? So look what happens. Acts 15, verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles will hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by what? Faith. 
Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So here's what Peter does. He stands up and he reminds them of the history of how God started saving Gentiles. And and here's how it goes in the short version. Uh, One day, Peter has this vision that leads him to going with Gentiles to the house of a Gentile named Cornelius. And Cornelius is a guy that a Jewish person should never eat with because he's not a Jew. And yet Jesus says to Peter explicitly three times, don't call unclean what I've made clean. So Peter's like, okay, I'm not supposed to go into the house of a Gentile and eat with them, but I'm going to go because Jesus told me to. He shows up and it's like Cornelius is throwing this block party because he's waiting to hear the message of salvation. He's got all of his relatives and his friends together, his neighbors together. Peter shows up and here's what happens. Peter tells them the good news of Jesus. He talks about Jesus's life of obedience. He talks about his bloody death for our sins. He talks about his historic, witnessed, reliable resurrection. And while he's doing this, it's so crazy. There's no like evangelical manipulative altar call. You know what I mean? Where we're like, close your eyes and bow your heads. And we're going to play some weird synthesizer music. And if you want to trust in Jesus, just slip up your hand and fill out this card. There's none of that. No synthesizer, no music. Here's what happens. While he's finishing up his sermon, God, the Holy Spirit, he totally changes the hearts of these Gentiles. They trust in Jesus. They repent of their sins. And the same crazy stuff that the Holy Spirit did in Acts 2 happens to them. They start speaking in tongues and prophesying. And what's crazy about all that, what's crazy about all that is they experienced new birth. They experienced the joys of salvation all without circumcision or the keeping of the law. It's a gift of grace. And so Peter's like, hey, uh, guys, guys, Jesus didn't make a distinction when I went to Cornelius's house. Jesus wanted Cornelius and he wanted his family and his Gentile relatives to be a part of the people of God. He didn't make a distinction. So how dare you start to make a distinction that limits the power and scope of the gospel to a certain type person and that makes it about what we can do instead of what God has done. He reminds them of it. And I would just say, like, what happens right here, what we just read, is fantastic news for those of you that are here and you're like, hey, man, uh, the claims of Jesus are really appealing to me, but I don't think that I'm the type of person that wants to trust and follow Jesus because, man, I just don't think I'm like Ned Flanders or I don't think I fit into, like, Christian subculture. I I don't want to burn my albums and I don't want to get a fish on my car (laughs) and And you're like, man, I just don't think I fit in with this deal. And Christian subculture is weird. And Christian subculture music is terrible. And if I have to become like that to follow Jesus, I think I'm out. I I had a lady that was the first convert of our church. She was one of the most precious people I've ever met. And uh, I really love this lady. She's an artist. And she had gone through a really painful life. And one day she called me and Nancy and she said, hey, can you, can you get some time for us to just kind of talk? And I'm like, oh, of course, yeah, let's get together. And we get together and start talking. And she says, hey, I've been coming to church. It's the first time I've ever been to church. And it sounds like what you're saying is that Jesus is God and he died for me and he's alive and he wants me to trust him and walk with him. Is that what you're saying? I was like, yeah. And then she started weeping. She started weeping and she said, well, I really want to do that. But 
all of my friends and relatives have basically told me that to be a follower of Jesus, I have to join a particular political party. I was like, hey, hey, you know what? In Acts chapter 15, the apostle Peter reminds the other apostles and the elders that Jesus didn't make distinction between Jew and Greek, that the gospel of Jesus is for anyone and everyone There's not a type. If you are a religious person, and what I mean by that is man-centered religion where you're trying to clean up your life to either put God in your debt or so that you can compare yourself to other people and feel better about yourself or you're a religious person, meaning you're just like got a lot of guilt and shame and fear and you're trying to build this ladder of good deeds to get to God. Um, Guess what? Jesus is not one that plays favorites, he came to die for you and to deliver you from your dead religion. And if you're like tons of people in our church and you're just kind of the other extreme, um, you saw religion in the Midwest and you're like, I'm out, I don't want that. I'm gonna just do what feels good. I'm kind of gonna live a hedonistic life or I'm gonna try to find meaning outside of a relationship with God. Um, Jesus died on a cross to pursue you. And what I want to say today just so loudly is one of the things that's so beautiful about the gospel is that there's not a type unless you define that type by human beings that are sinners in need of salvation. That's the type. He moves towards people. He doesn't demand that they become Jewish or shift their culture or change their diet or their dress to follow Jesus. It's a gift towards people. Now, the second thing that's crazy is maybe even more importantly, they're going to address the heart of the good news of Jesus, which is not Jesus plus something you do to, re- to receive the grace of God. It's Jesus alone. Look at 15 verse 11. But we believe that they, these Gentiles, will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Full stop, the heart of the gospel is this. It's that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You don't contribute. You don't add to it. You don't put like 10% of your effort in and then God does 90% of the effort to receive the saving grace of God, which means sin doesn't get the last word. Death doesn't get the last word. To be adopted into God's family is something that's a gift of grace that comes by faith in Jesus. And that's it. That is it. And the tragedy of what the Judaizers is doing, what they're doing is they're adding something to the essential for salvation that the Bible doesn't add, namely circumcision and the keeping of the purity laws of Judaism. So two questions. Like, if that's true, then we have to ask the question, what is grace if it's so central? What is grace? And secondly, if grace is so awesome, why would anybody try to add to it? Like, why are we as human beings so flippin' good and determined to continually redefine the gospel in terms of stuff we do instead of what God has done? Why do we keep doing that? So these two questions, let me answer them as best as I can quickly. What is grace? Um, if you were raised in the church, you've probably heard this definition. Uh, if you went to VBS, which is Vacation Bible School, um, for those of you that are not raised in the church, VBS is not a skin condition. It's like a thing that people would go to, to hear about Jesus. Um, if, if you were raised in the church, you've probably heard this definition, that grace is the unmerited favor of God. 
And I don't want to take anything away from that. That's totally legit. Like that's an accurate definition. But the danger is sometimes what starts to happen is we start to think that grace is something God creates outside of himself. Like grace is this substance that God's cooking up in heaven and he's like adding all these ingredients and every now and then like it's like fairy dust. He just throws it down on humanity. It's like external to God. It's something he gives you apart from himself. But here's what I want you to see. Grace is so essential to salvation and it's not something you contribute to because grace is, it's receiving the acceptance and love of God himself that's towards you and for you based on the finished work of Jesus. Another way to put it is this. Um, Grace is not just an abstract doctrine. Grace is the relational experience of the love of a holy God who's counting Jesus's track record as your track record as a gift of mercy and kindness. So let me put it to you in another way. Like, think about it like this. What's grace and why is it so great? Um, grace is at least a two-part movement. Um, the first part of the movement is that Jesus Christ, who is the unique only begotten son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he takes on flesh at his birth and he does something that no other human being's ever done. He lived a perfect life that you could never live. And some of you are thinking, well, I've known some really great people. I know, but you've never known any perfect people. Jesus with every heartbeat, delighted in the law of God. Perfectly loved the Father. He perfectly loved his neighbor. He lived a life of courageous obedience. Like Jesus was bursting with charity and mercy and truth and courage. Jesus lived 33 years on this planet as the only human being that's ever dotted every I and crossed every T that's expected of humanity from a holy, perfect God. He did it all. And here's what's scandalous about the gospel. When you trust in Jesus, the first movement of grace is that God the Father takes Jesus's track record of righteousness and he credits it to your account by clothing you in Jesus. Paul talks a lot about this crazy idea of being in Christ, in Christ. You read all of his letters, in Christ or in him. And being in Christ means, at least partially, that Jesus's righteousness, his purity, his goodness, his acceptance gets counted as yours. So just stop here and think about the baptism of Jesus. This is mind-blowing. At the baptism of Jesus, Jesus gets baptized and God the Father speaks and God the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. And here's how it goes down. At the baptism of Jesus, he goes under the water, comes out, and the Father says this. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And God, the Holy Spirit lands on Jesus. And we almost get the impression that God, the Holy Spirit is helping Jesus in his humanity to experience the love of the father. Well, here's what happens by grace. When you trust in Jesus, the same declaration that the father had towards Jesus, that Jesus fully and completely deserved because he's the unique son of God and the only perfect human being. Grace is you getting the same declaration that Jesus got, even though you didn't deserve it. Your racism and your worship of stuff that's not God and your crimes against God and your lack of charity and your religion that made your heart cold to God and full of pride, all of those things that are blocks and barriers between you and God, Jesus, Jesus, his 
perfection gets counted as yours. And that's not the end of grace. Uh, That wouldn't be sufficient. But here's what also happens. Not only does his track record get counted as yours and mine, but this is the scandal of the gospel. Our track record. Like every single thought and intention of our hearts that have been evil. And I know, man, like a good liberal arts education can be helpful. But a lot of us have been taught this crazy idea that man's basically good. Man's basically good. And given the right education, the right opportunity, he's going to do good things. And that's a great, wonderful enlightenment fairy tale that just doesn't bear out with history or anybody in this room's personal experience. Truth is, man, there's stuff inside of our hearts and souls right now you don't want your spouse to know about. We've belittled God. We've hated people. We're prone towards greed. We're prone towards objectifying each other. Hearts are bent. We've sinned with what we've said. We've sinned with what we thought. We've sinned with what we felt. We've sinned with our hands. We've sinned with our mouths. And it's not a little deal unless God's a little God. But if God is really God, if he's really holy, if he's really pure, if he's really just, all of those things that might seem trite, they become a really big deal. And when you start to think of all of humanity, not just your individual particular bents, but when you think of all the racism of humanity and the rapes that we've perpetrated and the worship of stones and trees instead of the living God and the way that we love money and hate people. When you think of the scope of all the history of humanity, it gets mind-blowing the level of evil that we have inside of us. Here's what happens on the cross. Not against his will, but out of love. Jesus takes the sin of humanity on himself. And the scripture says that he that knew no sin became sin. That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. My lust got counted as Jesus's. Greed and all of those things that are so evil and stink before God. Jesus bears that. And he experiences the justice of God in our place, the wrath of God in our place. So what's grace? Grace is us getting what Jesus deserved and Jesus getting what we deserved so that by faith in him, we could be counted as sons and daughters of God that can expect blessing and security and hope and transcendence and death not to get the final word. Grace is amazing. Grace is incredible. So let me ask you a question. Why would anybody tweak that? If that's true, and I get some of you are here and you're like, man, I don't really buy that. But can you at least concede that if that's true, that's really great news. Why would anybody mess with that recipe? If it's really this free offer of such lavish mercy and kindness, all based on Jesus, and all you have to do is believe in Jesus and receive it, why would we tweak that? I think when you think about these Judaizers, it's easy to think that they're just jerks. Like they're just harsh, grumpy people that are just going around trying to bum people out, run people's days. But actually what you see in the Judaizers is the bent of all people towards man-centered religion away from grace. Because 
if you think about it like this, grace is a little bit offensive to you and me. In fact, if we could get really honest, it's really offensive to you and me. Because we're people, we're people that are hardwired for a kind of religion, and I would argue, even those of us here that are that are atheistic or agnostic, I would say, even if you don't believe in a higher power of God, you're still hardwired for a kind of religion that says what I do is gonna justify my meaning and existence. What I can accomplish, what I can pull off, what I can build, what I can make, what I can know, what I can believe, that's really what's gonna make life meaningful. And what religion really does is it takes whatever the God is that it worships And then it brings offerings and sacrifices to that God of its labor and its blood and its sweat and its tears. And it demands that that God gives the worshiper what he or she deserves. And grace is really scandalous because here's what grace does. First of all, grace strips us naked of comparison. We love to compare ourselves against people that we think we're better than, don't we? I know this is church, no place for honesty, but like that, that's a place you might want to consider a hearty amen, even if you're a little self-righteous, because we all do that. Like we have the sliding scale of humanity. You've got Hitler, you've got Pol Pot, you've got like, for me, it's like Justin Bieber's right, he's like right here. Then you've got the really great people on this side, Mother Teresa, Dr. King, people that change the world. And, and here's the way we like to approach humanity. As long as I'm kind of like further to this end of the spectrum than that end of the spectrum, then I feel pretty good about myself. And I'm not Hitler. I'm, it's, a great, it's a great Tuesday. And what grace does is grace strips you of the ability to find justification or identity or meaning in a life of comparison. It evens the playing field. It doesn't say that every person is, is necessarily equal in the evil that they've perpetrated. But it does say that every single person, no matter how moral or how much of an impact they've made based on culture, all of them fall short. It strips us of earning. If grace is a gift, then that actually takes away my control to be able to kind of walk into the throne room of God and pull out my resume and say, hey, you better check out what I've done for you and do what I demand of you. Grace strips your ability to make any demands of God because it's all a gift. Grace strips us of pride big time. Takes your pride, man, because it's like, oh, you mean I can contribute anything to being in a right relationship with God? He had to do it through his own son. That strips all pride from you. And so it makes sense. It makes sense that we would have this thing inside of us that would say, hey, grace sounds really great, but what sounds even better than grace is a recipe with a lot of grace and at least, at least a few parts of my effort and earning so that I can still hold my head high and look down my nose at people that I think are not as great as me. (laughs) And that's what the Judaizers are doing. And, And can I just say, we do this in Oklahoma a lot. Jesus plus the right denomination or Jesus plus the right whatever. And I just want to say so loudly, the heart of the Christian gospel is that you enter into receiving the promises of God and the blessings of God and relationship with God, not through Jesus plus, but through Jesus alone. It's a gift and it's scandalous and it's wonderful. And it's such great news that we should be really excited about it and we should sing about it and we should talk about it and we should tell people about it. Now, let's end with this. So 
the two misconceptions here are getting hit. Misconception one, um, Jesus's good news is just for a type of person. Misconception two, the good news of Jesus is received by trusting in Jesus plus something you do to contribute like circumcision. They hit those, but now look where they land because it's fascinating. We're saved by grace alone, but grace never stays alone. It never stays alone. Grace leads towards Grace leads towards and is the foundation of what the Bible talks about is sanctification. That's growth in holiness. And some of you during the sermon, you're getting nervous. You're like, I knew that this was a cheap grace church. I knew that this sermon was going to be about Josh's weird version of grace that means that we can do whatever we want to do. And that's okay. And we can just play the grace card. Like, actually, here's what's fascinating. Um, when we really preach grace, that's the foundation, the beginning and end of our salvation. It's all about Jesus. It leads to really profound life changes. Look at Acts 15, 19. This is a guy named James. He's one of the leading leaders in Jerusalem. Here's what he says. Verse 19. So they've nailed that salvation is by grace alone for the Gentiles, not circumcision. And here's what he says. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should not trouble them. Let's not add superfluous, unnecessary stuff for salvation. Verse 20, but write to them. Now think about how weird these things are. Write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols. That's food sacrificed to an idol, which was common in the ancient world. And from sexual immorality. It's like, okay, that kind of makes sense with the rest of scripture. And from what has been strangled. What is that about? And from blood. Like, what is he talking about? And then verse 21, he says, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, I'm going to tell you what I think is happening here. I think what's happening here is James is putting these different commands, these different commands, roughly into two categories that the grace of God grows and produces in the people of God. And the two categories are these. The grace of God, first of all, it leads towards love. It, it just leads towards love. Um, the whole idea about meat sacrificed to idols and meat that's been strangled and meat that has blood in it, Paul's going to write elsewhere. He's going to be like, well, you know, I mean, if it doesn't cause a brother to stumble, you don't need to stress out too much about that stuff. So it's not like James is saying, hey, the end of all ends is that you don't eat meat sacrificed by or strangled or sacrificed by idols, or if you like eat a rare steak, that's really bad before the living God. Like, that's not the point. The point is what he says at the end here. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city been proclaimed. He has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Here's what he's saying. These Gentile Christians are going to be doing life with Jewish Christians who are going to be raised with particular dietary traditions and customs, and they're going to really have deep conscience issues with meat sacrificed to idols and meat that has blood in it and meat that's been strangled. It's going to really damage their walk with Jesus and their faith. It's going to be really hard for them if you get together with your community group and the Jewish folks are there and the Gentile folks bring things that for the Jews would be really difficult to participate in and maybe even damage their faith. So what is he driving at? He's saying, man, like grace makes you so free that for the sake of love, you can even be free from your freedom. Grace makes you so free that you can even lay down your rights and your privileges and your boundaries. And you can even, you can even be free from your freedom for the sake of love. What does this mean? It's just so awesome. Here's what it means. Grace is 
the love of God in Christ that's yours and that God the Holy Spirit wants to help you to experience as you read scripture and pray and are in community. And as you experience the fact that God first loved you, what starts to happen is you begin to grow in your love for God and it never stops there. Growth in your love for God because he first loved you leads towards growth in love for other people. Now, I'm not going to give you 25 different applications of this. I'm just going to say, like, what, is, what does a person 2,000 years later do with this? Are we like, do we, do we make a big deal about meat, sacrifice to idols? Well, that really doesn't happen in OKC. No, here's the point. The point is, love is a lot more beautiful than flaunting your liberty. Love is a lot better than always claiming your rights. Better to lay down your freedom and lay down your rights to love your neighbor, to love your community, to love your spouse than to always demand what's yours. Grace creates that. Now, grace also leads to a growth, not just in love, but it leads to a growth in purity, to a growth in purity. Why does he give them this command to abstain from sexual immorality? Well, the Bible's really clear that, that followers of Jesus are at a war against all sin, but especially sins of immorality. Sins of immorality erode your soul and they're bad for relationship and they, they hurt your ability to experience communion with God and they destroy families and destroy culture. And the Gentiles 2,000 years ago, if you think our culture right now is sexually corrupt, their culture was really corrupt, at least equally as corrupt as ours. There was sex with temple prostitutes and worshiping various cults. There was tons of adultery, tons of fornication. Um, In many of those cultures, it was culturally acceptable to have sex with children. I mean, there was all kinds of perversion going on in the ancient world. And when he writes to these Gentile believers to abstain from sexual immorality, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying clean up your life and then you can become a follower of Jesus because then he would be undoing what he just said, that we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. But here's what grace produces. If Jesus had to pay that price for the atonement of my sins, including my sexual sins, and if my sexual sins hurt my ability to love neighbor and to worship God in freedom and in communion, I need to war against those things because they're warring against my soul. Grace doesn't lead towards, when it's really preached and really believed and really taught, grace doesn't lead to a church full of people that are just like sleeping around and getting trashed all the time and cheating on their taxes. If you really mind the depths of grace, you're going to want to grow. You're going to want to repent. You're going to want to love God more than silly sins because here's what he's saying. In essence, it's way more satisfying to have a relationship with the living God in and through Jesus, it's way more satisfying for your soul than sexual encounters that are trite and sinful and not God's created order that wage war against your soul. So we can grow in repentance. 